1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. Today, I am joined by Dean Tomiko Brown-Nagin, author of Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality. Dean Brown-Nagin is Dean of Harvard-Radcliffe Institute, one of the world's leading centers for interdisciplinary research across the humanities, sciences, social sciences, arts, and professions. She's also the Daniel P.S. Paul Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard Law School and a professor of history at Harvard University. She's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Law Institute, and the American Philosophical, Philosophical Society, a fellow of the American Boris Foundation, a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians, and a member of the Board of Directors of ProPublica. Dean brown Nagan has published articles and book chapters on a wide range of topics, including the Supreme Court's Equal, Protecting Jurisprudence, Civil Rights Law and History, and the Affordable Care Act. She is a contributing editor of Politico magazine. Her first book, Courage to Dissent, Atlanta and the Long History of the Civil Rights Movement, won the 2002 Bancroft Prize in American History. Today we will be discussing her second book, Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality. Thank you for joining me today, Dean Brown-Nagin. It's my pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about the book?
1: Sure. Civil Rights Queen is a book about Constance Baker Motley, who was a pathbreaking civil rights lawyer, politician, and judge. In fact, she was the first black woman appointed to the federal courts, and I use her life and work to discuss social change and legal change in 20th century America. She is a person who both embodied change herself because she was personally a pathbreaker, but also helped to bring about social and legal change for others. And so she was a very appealing uh, subject for a biography.
2: How did you become interested in Constance Baker Motley?
1: Sure. Well, I had long known about Constance Baker Motley, but it was not until I was writing Courage to Dissent, Atlanta, and the Long History of the Civil Rights Movement uh, that I looked in depth at her work and legacy. And I did that um, because she is the lawyer who argued the Atlanta school desegregation case all the way to the Supreme Court uh, successfully. And I uh, approached the chapter on that case with the intention of writing a biographical sketch of Motley, as I did for all of the lawyers who were part of that book project. And what I noticed uh, at the time is that there was relatively little um, a scholarly engagement with Motley and her legacy. And I thought that uh, it was, as I mentioned in the introduction to Civil Rights Queen, a kind of historical malpractice to, um, to overlook her or to minimize her to the extent that I found in the literature at the time. And so I set about writing about this extraordinarily fascinating and impactful lawyer.
2: How difficult was it to reconstruct Motley's life, or was it? What challenges did you face as a writer, as a scholar, in creating this text?
1: Sure. Um, I would say that there are many, many sources, archival papers about Motley's life and work held by the Library of Congress, the uh, Smith, uh, Sophia Smith, archives, um, uh, Columbia, NYU. In addition, there were some personal papers um, that uh, I found from um, the with the help of, of family members. The thing that was difficult, I will say, is researching and recreating her internal life. And that's for two reasons that are intersecting reasons. One, it turns out that judges uh, in general are very cautious about revealing their internal thoughts um, or internal world. And that's because there is this truism that um, judges are only influenced by the law itself and so they don't want to leave a, a lot behind uh, to reveal their thoughts and then compounding that was the reality that Constance Baker Motley was a pretty private person um, and uh, not a person whom I would call terribly introspective and so um, uh, she As an individual, um, it was was hard to get to know. And so what I had to do was to ensure that I um, conducted a lot of oral history interviews with family members, with former colleagues, with um, really anyone I could find who knew her. And I was able to um, piece together her, her personality and to make that a part of the book and I'm happy that I was able to do that because it's really a requirement for a biography to be able to um, say a bit about uh, the person's personality, uh, how she interacted with others and I'm, I'm very happy with what I was able to achieve um, and again thanks in part to my ability to speak to her family members and do research about her family.
2: I would like to say you did that successfully well because I was drawn in um, into her story, into her life. Terrific, I'm glad. (laughs) Let's begin by taking a look at her early years, some of what shaped her. So how did her, Motley's parents' identity as immigrants from Nevis shape her childhood?
1: Sure, Motley's uh, family uh, did immigrate from the island of Nevis in the West Indies, and they thought of themselves, both the mom and the the father, as special people. In fact, the father, given his uh, his uh, racial background, he was mixed race, and also worked as a skills trademan on Nevis was literally called a special person. It was a part of a class of people who were identified as special people. Um, they also identified with the British empire. They were pleased. They said to be subjects of the British empire. They thought of themselves as a class apart from American blacks. Um, they were, Socially conservative, culturally conservative, and um, passed all of these uh, characteristics down to Motley. And in particular, I want to point out that on the subject of the relationship to American Blacks, Motley's father, in particular, uh, was uh, viewed Black Americans, including the migrants from the South who landed in New Haven, where Um, The Domitians also landed in their family quite unfavorably. He would not allow his children to play uh, with the children of uh, Black migrants and really thought that um, these Southerners had allowed themselves to be debased by segregation. So it was quite a caricature um, of American race relations, and uh, it is, I say in the book even uh, either despite or because of her father's low opinion of American blacks that Constance Baker Motley grew up to be the civil rights queen. Uh, of course, uh, much of her work did have a positive impact on, uh, American blacks. So it's a, it's quite an interesting, um, story there.
2: That it is. Now growing up in Connecticut, um, Motley's childhood, you mentioned, was a studying contrast between the North and the South.
1: Yes. Well, she certainly did view it that way. And there was some truth in her understanding that the uh, North and the South were completely different. Of course, it was Jim Crow segregation in the South. Um, generally, by the time Motley came along, that uh, was not the case in New Haven, Connecticut, and yet uh, the point that I a point that I make in my book is that there certainly was discrimination um, against uh, blacks uh, in uh, the state of Connecticut. They were limited in terms of the occupations that they could pursue. Joe, so her her father, and uh, all of the virtually all of the men in her family worked uh, as uh, servants at Yale University. Um, they were not blacks; were not uh, invited to work in the high-paying industries, including the munition munitions uh, industry in uh, Connecticut. Um, she also um, recounts one incident of discrimination racial discrimination, um, where she was not allowed to um, uh, use a public beach in Connecticut. And there were lots of other factors um, that undercut her sense that life in Connecticut was so different from Life in the Deep South, and of course, it was the point that I uh, make in my book is that it's important not to paint too rosy a picture of uh, her circumstances in Connecticut, uh, including because she she faced a lot of barriers, much of them connected to her class background, but of course, class and race are um, are connected themselves.
2: Very true. Motley, she grew up during the 1930s. How did the Great Depression and the emergence of left-leaning politics shape her identity?
1: Right. So the Great Depression was an era of profound uh, class disadvantage that gave rise to a lot of activism around... uh, that subject, um, and a lot of left-leaning activism, which Motley witnessed. Uh, She participated in some of it. She was a part of groups that um, represented the interests of the working class, uh, pro-union groups, and also became acquainted with the struggle for racial equality uh, during this time. So the point that I make is that um, that flourishing political moment uh, during the Great Depression and after had a profound impact on Motley's sense of herself. Uh, She developed an interest in reform movement as a result of her coming of age experience. And thus, that experience is fundamental to understanding the trajectory of her life and how she became an activist uh, and became a lawyer. It was the uh, the right place for her, she thought, to channel her activism. And uh, it's it's really important then to understand um, how the Great Depression um, shaped her throughout the course of her life.
2: Once Motley graduated from high school, her goals for life different from those of her parents. What did she want that caused conflict within an otherwise close knit family?
1: Yes. Well, what she wanted first of all was to attend college, and this was a very lofty and unusual um, aspiration for a working class a black girl in in. Connecticut, New Haven, Connecticut, at that time, uh, immigrant or not. Um, And moreover, she got this idea that she wanted to attend law school, which was fantastical um, for a person like her. And her parents did think that both aspirations were uh, silly. And her mom told her that she should pursue. Um, a a career, a vocation that was more practical in nature. She encouraged uh, her daughter to become a hairdresser. Um, and although uh, you know, being a stylist was certainly a worthy aspiration, it was very different from what Motley wanted for herself. Uh, and fortunately she was able to Achieve those dreams through the support of a New Haven philanthropist uh, who heard her speak at a civic organization uh, when she was still a teenager. And uh, as a result of being so impressed with her, offered to subsidize her college and pay for her law school um, expenses. And so she uh, said that it was like a fairy tale. And indeed, it was a life changing intervention.
2: Very true. Initially, Motley chose to go to Fisk, and she traveled from New Haven to Tennessee. How much of that raised her awareness about racism that was occurring during this time?
1: Yes, the experience of having to change to the Jim Crow car, uh, she found uh, humiliating. It was frightening. And then once she arrived in Nashville, of course, she also was experienced to uh, subject to the experience of uh, of uh, Jim Crow segregation, uh, and and she didn't like it, and of course, it fueled her ambition to to do something about this uh, terrible inequality, which she ended up. Um, uh, doing just that through her career as a civil rights lawyer and uh, eventually transferred from Fisk to NYU, in part because um, Fisk was much quieter than she had expected. This was because of the war. Um, many professors and others had uh, uh, were, were not on campus because they were on the war front. And also she found Fisk less uh, politically engaging than she wanted. As I've explained, she was quite a politically conscious, socially conscious person. She wanted to be involved. And she found that many of the students at Fisk, who some of whom were um, very unlike her in terms of their class background, just were were not as as socially engaged. And so she uh, wanted to go back to New York and she did to be on a campus uh, that was quite socially engaged, and that was NYU.
2: And she completed her degree at NYU, and she entered into Columbia Law School. What was that environment environment like, given that it was 1944? You mentioned how Fisk and with the war, what was happening. Did something similar happen at Columbia during this time?
1: Sure. Well, I would say that she uh, certainly was um, uh, her her chances for attending Columbia Law School were increased because there are so many men uh, who, again, were on the war front. And so uh, Columbia did admit a handful of women and also uh, a handful of people of color. Uh, and yet the experience was not uh, terribly engaging for her. She uh, experienced law school as rather boring. Of course, this was before um, there was a civil rights curriculum. And uh, so she she just wasn't that engaged by uh, law school. And in addition, it wasn't a, a terribly inviting environment for women. Um this was the era when uh, female students were thought to not belong um, and were either ignored by professors or they were um, they were subject to women's day when they were expected to be on call. Uh, and so it was not a, it was not a great environment for her. And she was happy to, to graduate and to find uh, her, uh, find an ability to pursue her passion for social change through employment at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund.
2: What was it like for her working with Thurgood Marshall?
1: Well, the first thing I will say is that Marshall hired her on the spot when she came to his office seeking a, an internship. And this was a very different experience from uh, her attempts to find employment in New York City law firms where the partner uh, she tells a story where a partner look, took one look at her and closed the door, uh, so it was not very welcoming. And this was, uh, of course, a common experience for the few women uh, law school graduates at the time. In fact, it it continued to be uh, a common experience for them. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg tells a similar story. Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, uh, told a similar story about the lack of opportunities. And so it was terrific to be invited by Thurgood Marshall to work at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, to be uh, told about his experiences working with women uh, who were engaged in, say, public school teaching. Um, He was a warm colleague, uh, although as I describe in my book, there were several instances of uh, Motley uh, experiencing the same kind of limitations based on gender that any woman experienced at the time.
2: As the time of her professional life begins to take off, there were some changes in her personal life as well. She gets married, yet Motley does not seem to have that traditional marriage for the time period.
1: That's right. I I do tell a story about uh, her marriage to uh, Joel Wilson Motley uh, and how it was a companionate marriage. He supported her at a time when uh, it was just uncommon to have what I describe as a more or less egalitarian marriage. Of course, it was helpful that his profession was real estate. He had uh, his own firm, which meant that there he had a pretty flexible um, employment arrangement. And so he not only supported her by uh, later on uh, faring her to work every day and back, but he also was a partner in the raising of their one child, uh, which, of course, is Um, was quite beneficial to Motley's ability to do her work. In
2: 1949, Motley had her first court appearance as a trial lawyer in the case of Bates versus Bat in Mississippi. What was that experience like for her? And it comes to mind as I'm thinking about this, the reference that you made of one of the few Black lawyers in Mississippi, James Burns and his subservient attitude. What was that like for Motley to experience that?
1: Yes. Well, it was, um, both an exhilarating experience to be trying a case in Jackson, Mississippi. And it also was a frightening, and very challenging experience because she not only was a black lawyer, she was a black woman lawyer. Uh, And uh, so the the folks of Mississippi were not accustomed to this. And uh, she, in particular, caused a scene when she walked uh, along the streets of Jackson, Mississippi, Um, She was uh, trying the case with her uh, fellow lawyer, Robert Carter, a black lawyer of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And um, even as they were challenging uh, segregation, they were subject to segregation in Jackson. So they couldn't stay in white owned hotels. They could not uh, eat food served by white restaurants. I tell a story about how they couldn't even; they were they were treated disrespectfully uh, by a white proprietors, including at um, a fruit stand, uh, which angered Motley. But she understood that she had to abide by the social norms of the day. At the same time, of course, she and her Uh, co-counsel were transgressive by going into the courtroom and standing up to the judge and uh, asking, uh, interrogating white officials who were holding the line um, by paying black teachers less than white ones regardless of their qualifications. And um, the contrast between uh, Motley's transgressiveness and what was expected of Black people, including the handful of Black lawyers um, who were practicing in the South, was illustrated by this co-counsel, Jess Brown, who, um, even as he was the local counsel for the NAACP, illustrated his subservience to whites by never turning his back on the judge and also walking bent at the waist away from the bench. Um, and it was just extraordinary. And he also was very clearly frightened um, by the experience of being seen as an ally of these black lawyers from New York. Uh, which is a way of saying that this was a dangerous assignment for Motley and Carter to challenge um, the, the system of, of racial oppression in the way that they were. Um, and uh, uh, it's resulted, this case resulted in um, a backlash, retaliation against the black teacher who challenged the pay scale, She ended up having to move um, out of the state. And uh, I have to say that Motley and Carter were um, lucky to, to leave the state. Uh, alive. And that was generally the experience, um, I would say, of her practice life in Mississippi. And she did, uh, as I recount in the book, she tried several cases in Mississippi and Alabama, places where it was dangerous to be a civil rights lawyer.
2: Very true. She also, as she fought for equal pay in Mississippi, she also came back and fought for equal pay at the LDF. What happened in that situation?
1: Yes. Well, it was uh, ironic that after she had led this case challenging um, unequal pay for uh, African-American teachers in Jackson, she came back to the offices of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in New York And challenged Thurgood Marshall, saying that she was not paid what she should have been given her years of experience, nor that she had the title um, that was uh, appropriate given the functions that she was uh, performing uh, at the LDF. And so she essentially um, challenged uh, a form of discrimination, on her own behalf, and fortunately, ended up prevailing in that challenge. But it just says it says everything really um, about the her peculiar position as a lawyer um, uh, uh, who, who who essentially she was fighting battles on behalf of her clients, fighting similar battles for herself. Uh, she was quite a pathbreaker.
2: That she was. And she was also involved in the landmark case of Brown versus Board of Education. Yet her role is sometimes minimized. How did she assist with the case?
1: Yes, well, Motley formed um, uh, wrote the, the first uh, complaint in the set of cases that challenge segregation in schools. Um, and she also was vital in conducting research, uh, in support of the cases as they wound uh, through the courts. Um, she was very much a part of the team doing uh, this important research. She was on, the, on listed on the briefs that were filed in v Board of Education when it was argued at the Supreme court twice. Uh, and yet she was not a part of the, she was not an oralist at the Supreme court. And so um in the history book, she's, she's not, uh, until now, she's not been accorded the credit that I believe that she was due. Um, and so that's, that's what the chapter on uh, her role in Brown is all about, um, describing how it's not only the lawyers who argued at the Supreme Court who right, rightfully should be remembered, but Motley uh, as well for the work that she did. Including because after Brown was decided unanimously, it fell to her to litigate dozens of cases in the Deep South to actually implement the rule um, that, that mandatory segregation by race in public schools was no longer
0: lawful. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Very true. As you mentioned, Motley continued her work on desegregation following Brown. There were cases against the University of Florida, University of Alabama, University of Georgia, and she was also personally involved in the lives of her clients. Can you tell us a little bit about how those pioneering cases in the fight of desegregation impacted the plaintiffs such as Polly Ann Myers, authoring Lucy, James Meredith, how difficult and challenging was that environment for these plaintiffs during this time?
1: Sure. Well, a point that I make in my book is that these cases um, uh, were were very challenging, very difficult for the named plaintiffs. There was a human toll uh, of these landmark civil rights cases that we don't often describe. And I go to some length to describe in all of those cases um, the difficulties that the plaintiffs faced and in the University of Alabama case involving Polly Ann Meyer and authoring Lucy, I described how Meyer was dropped from the case uh, without any uh, protest from Motley and other NAACP lawyers. And she was dropped because the uh, school, the university learned that she had, uh, a child before she was married, which violated the norms of respectability. It was viewed as a character defect, and uh, she was unceremoniously dropped from the case, which meant that authoring Lucy, who had very much depended on uh, Pollyann for support, was left to fend by herself, and uh, ultimately the backlash proved too much. She was subjected to violence, to epithets, And she couldn't take it. Uh, And so that first University of Alabama case um, uh, ended in a a defeat for the Legal Defense Fund. It had to be litigated a second time in the 1960s, which is when the school was um, desegregated. And that was no uh, easy feat either, Uh, by the way. I discuss how... um, James, the James Meredith case took a toll. This is the case against Ole Miss, uh, took quite a toll on uh, Meredith as well as on Motley. It was an incredibly hard fought case um, where even federal judges who understood intellectually that the The university would have to be desegregated because, after all, this case is brought well after Brown v. Board of Education, after other cases, um, uh, made it clear that uh, that the law would require um, the desegregation of uh, the school. But nevertheless, uh, there was just a united front of opposition. Um, by segregationists in Mississippi against Meredith. They attacked his character. They retaliated against him. They uh, claimed that he had engaged in voter fraud, which should sound familiar even today. Um, So just an effort to wear him down, uh, which was also an effort to wear her down. And I describe how she had to go to great lengths to be supportive of Meredith um, and how there came a time when he uh, just just gave up and he had to be um, uh, essentially made to endure and we're happy that he did uh, because eventually uh, by virtue of a Supreme Court order, James Meredith was ordered into the university. And yet, even then, there was lots of backlash. And um, uh, an individual lost his life as a result of that fight to integrate Ole Miss. And uh, these are the stories about these cases that uh, I believe we ought to know, um, in addition to understanding that they were landmark cases that resulted in African American students and others being able to attend these flagship universities today, and it was no easy road for the plaintiffs or the lawyers.
2: I agree. These are cases, and we do need to know more about these plaintiffs. In 1961, when Thurgood Marshall was appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, Motley suffered a setback, a professional setback, when he chose Jack Green, a white civil rights attorney, as his successor. How did Motley respond to this challenge?
1: Right, it's Jack Greenberg, and Marshall endorsed Greenberg for his position, and the the board ultimately appointed him. Um, Motley was disappointed, as were many black lawyers, Um, She thought that she deserved the role. Uh, There were other Black lawyers, including Bob Carter, who might have been appointed to director counsel of the NAACP. None of them were. Um, Motley responded with disappointment, but she she carried on, which is what she always did. Um, She didn't think it was fair. She didn't think it was right. But she. Uh, was given a sort of consolation prize in that she was appointed number two to Jack Greenberg. Um, and, and and yet the story I tell is that the, the denial of this opportunity did open Motley up to other um, uh, opportunities, including a career in politics. And in the final analysis, she was able to achieve a prestigious position uh, to the appointment to the judiciary, but it was quite it was quite a disappointment for her, um, uh, because she did know that Thurgood Marshall, her mentor, had a hand in this biggest setback of her career, uh, to that point. And so it was just um it was it was it was it was a sad time for her.
2: Now Motley, she also suffered that is for other reasons, because she was intimately acquainted with some um, pioneers of the civil rights movement, such as Met Evans and his death, and the impact of that on her. And she also um, worked with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. How did those relationships shape her in many respects?
1: Hmm. Well, Megger Evers, who was the head of the NAACP in Mississippi, was a friend to Motley and um, a companion when she flew back and forth um, between New York and Mississippi to litigate the Meredith case. He would pick her up from the airport. He would um, invite her to be a part of uh, the community she stayed with. Um, Medgar and Murley, his wife, and their children when she visited Mississippi to litigate. Uh, And as I mentioned, this is a very dangerous assignment, and so it was so helpful to have his support when she was in the state. Um, uh, As I describe in the book, after Motley left Mississippi, Uh, after she had finished litigating the Meredith case, Megar Evers was assassinated and it was a crushing defeat for Motley. She lost her friend and his assassination really drove home to her how dangerous that assignment was. She could have been killed um, herself and she um, was just uh, devastated by his death and In fact, so devastated that she couldn't bring herself to attend his funeral, she was, she was, uh, you know, she remained uh, behind in New York uh, in bed, and it was just a a crushing blow for her. Um, By contrast, the story that I tell about Motley and uh, Dr. King is uh, one of. Uh, you know, deep friendship uh, and a, um, an interaction by King with a female professional um, that taught him the lesson that women uh, could be leaders, um, that he could depend on a woman uh, to, to rescue him. Uh, she represented him several times, including in Birmingham, um, and it, it's a it's a terrific story to tell because it does stand in contrast to other uh, stories that we've heard about King and how um, he was a disappointment to leaders like Ella Baker, um, who famously said that King had uh, feet of clay because he didn't rise to the occasion. In her view, um, he, he wasn't the community leader that she thought. Ella Baker thought he should be and didn't recognize her and other women leaders in the way that he ought to have. Um, And yet Motley is a different story. And I explained that um, uh, in, in, in part, the reason that King was able to recognize Motley was because she was in, she was occupying a traditionally male role as a lawyer and, and so he does get proper credit for recognizing Motley, and yet um, uh, his ability to get along with her, to admire her, does not really take away from the critique lodged by people like Ellen Baker, um, who are working in his own organization and not, uh, did not receive uh, the proper credit due.
2: Very true. As I was reading your chapters, especially as Motley was working in the courtroom as a litigator, I wish I could have seen her. What was she like in the courtroom where, you, you know, what are the stories that you were able to learn about her in the courtroom?
1: Mm. Well, the first thing that um, must be said about Motley is that she was is very tall, nearly standing nearly six feet tall. And she was physically striking. She was attractive or a handsome woman, as, as would have been said at the time. Uh, and uh, all of these attributes were helpful, uh, given the environment that she encountered in uh, courtrooms, where she often was the only woman, uh, the only uh, person of color, or perhaps one of two Um, So it helped to be physically commanding um, under those circumstances. Uh, She did encounter a lot of hostility from co-counsel. I describe how when she was litigating the Meredith case, the counsel representing the state of Mississippi would not shake her hand. Uh, She put out her hand once and it it just... just, Mm -hmm hung out there because he he would not touch her, which she thought was curious because she did not feel inferior. She had not routinely experienced this kind of treatment. Um, And so it was, it was disappointing to her. Uh, He would not call her by her um, proper honorific, Mrs. Motley. Um, I recount how she challenged him and said to the judge, who himself was a segregationist, if he couldn't call this counsel, couldn't call her um, uh, by her proper name, he shouldn't refer to her at all. Um, and so there were many, many moments like this, but ultimately, the impression that one should take away is of Motley being a kind of warrior. Um, for social justice and confronting the challenges that awaited her in the courtroom always. She was very strong. She was unflappable um, and uh, was a terrific courtroom litigator.
2: As I said, I wish I could have seen that um, because it would have served as so much inspiration, especially to women, to black women during this time period. to others. Now she moves on from litigating to actually her involvement in politics. How did she become involved in politics?
1: Well, one thing I want to say, just going back to the notion of seeing her, um, I do include quite a few photographs in the book. Uh, There also is audio available of uh, some of motley's Supreme Court oral arguments and when I give presentations on my book I do uh, sometimes play some of that audio because I I think it's important to hear how steady her voice is and how commanding she is um, uh, so there's there's that if you want to take a listen
2: I would so most definitely <laughs> yeah. When you were asking me
1: about how she became involved in politics, well, as I said, she did experience that setback at uh, the Legal Defense Fund, would opened her to the possibility of uh, entertaining the entreaties, numerous entreaties that she received over time to stand for political office. And why were people asking her to do this? Well, because she had name recognition, which is vital for success in politics. And also she had a reputation for excellence. And um, so she was essentially worn down by New York uh, politicos who wanted her to run for office. She did end end up um, standing for the New York Senate. She won a seat in the New York Senate, the first um, black woman to do so. And then really the crown in her political career was being elected Manhattan Borough president, she's the first woman to be so elected. And uh, uh, it, was, it was controversial in some quarters. So, as you can imagine, um, there were uh, Democrats in New York City and New York State, including in Harlem. Uh, some men who were not that interested in uh, her invading their lane, uh, so to speak. And they articulated that. They didn't see her as a legitimate representative um, of Blacks in particular. And yet she was able to win those offices. And in her capacity as a an office holder, she did continue to fight for social justice, And through her control as Manhattan Borough president of the budget, she had a lot of influence over the budget. Of course, it's through the budget that one is able to fund social programs. Uh, She also funded revitalization programs for uh, Harlem. And so I view her as having been quite effective as a politician, although she was only um, uh, in only held office for a very short period of time. Uh, before being plucked for the federal judiciary,
2: very true. Now she became the first black woman nominated as a federal geor- judge. Excuse me. Unfortunately, it wasn't without controversy. How so?
1: Yes. Well, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson nominated her for the federal judiciary, and uh, originally wanted to appoint her to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. There was blowback against that um, because she believed she was a woman. Uh, but it also was because of her race, really combined race and gender. She had a lot of detractors who wanted to see someone else appointed. These are very prestigious Positions and um, there were lots of lawyers in New York who wanted the seat for themselves. Uh, She had um, famous distractors distractors, uh, for this appointment, including Senator Kennedy, um, who wanted a white man appointed. He thought it was too politically sensitive to have two black NAACP lawyers, Motley and Marshall, uh, sitting on the, the federal bench. Um, and so LBJ ended up appointing her to the U.S. District Court. Uh, that still was controversial for many of the same reasons. Um, and in addition, the... Uh, There were segregationists who opposed her, including Senator James Eastland, head of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, Eastland was an alum of Ole Miss and did not want to see the person who was responsible for its integration being a federal judge. And he put up all kinds of roadblocks, held up her appointment for seven months. But ultimately, she was confirmed to the federal judiciary, achieving Historic first.
2: Very true. And as I was reading, there were three cases that stuck in my mind the case of Martin Sostre, the blank v. Sullivan and Cromwell case and the case of Melissa Ludkey. And it made me wonder as I was reading about Motley's perspective on her cases as a judge. And I know you mentioned that judges often didn't reveal their internal thoughts, but could you get a sense of were there certain cases that Motley presided over that she was particularly proud of or that she felt connected to her? Sure.
1: The Sostre case, uh, Martin Sostre case, was one that she was very proud of. Um, this was a case involving a, a jailhouse lawyer, a black Puerto Rican man who had was in prison on trumped up drug charges, uh, who, who was placed in solitary confinement uh, because of retaliation against his prison activism, he alleged, and he filed a lawsuit uh, challenging as cruel and unusual punishment, the confinement to um, solitary, and Motley drew his case. She decided uh, in his favor, actually awarded him damages, and uh, the law enforcement community was not pleased with this outcome, and yet Motley was Um, very proud of her decision, although she was reversed in part by the Court of Appeals. And that's because she thought it was the right thing to do. She thought that um, it it was wrong to relegate prisoners to solitary confinement in this way, that it was psychologically damaging, that it was cruel and unusual. Um, And I, I will say that Motley was a trailblazer in that respect, and that quite, she was ahead of her time. You know, these days, quite a few um, uh, advocates have come around to her position, uh, but at the time, it was viewed as an extraordinary decision that uh, conferred rights upon imprisoned individuals. When a lot of people didn't think that um, that prisoners should have uh, constitutional rights. The other two cases were sex discrimination cases, one involving Melissa Lucky, who was a, a sports journalist who was barred from the clubhouse of the New York Yankees during the World Series. She sued on grounds that uh, it was sex discrimination, unlawful. Um, she was not being allowed to do her work on the same terms as male journalists. Molly drew that case and decided in uh, favor of Lucky. Again, it was a very controversial case. That the combination of um, uh, gender, a, a woman sports journalist sort of in, viewed as invading um, a male prerogative was uh, deeply controversial, but Motley again was proud of it. She thought it was sort of an open and shut case. Um, this woman not being able to do her job because of her gender. Um, and then there was the Blank versus Sullivan and Cromwell case, which involved female law school graduates who challenged the policies of this prestigious um, law firm um, in a case where the women alleged that they were not hired as they should have been, they were not promoted, and the off chance that they were hired, all because of their gender, and uh, Motley drew the case and actually had to contend with a motion by the law firm's uh, counsel to recuse herself on the grounds that because she had been a civil rights lawyer and because she was a woman herself who likely had been subject to discrimination, that she had no business actually presiding in the case. Motley rejected this motion, uh, saying that, well, actually, um, there was no showing of actual president's prejudice uh, on her part and that all judges come to the bench with a background, with a practice background, with a gender and a race. It was not exclusive to her. And it was uh, an extraordinary opinion that is still cited today for the proposition that uh, counsel can't just... Uh, target uh, women or people of color uh, judges for recusal merely on the basis of their identity. Um, And then Motley uh, went on to rule in favor of a settlement um, that uh, on behalf of women uh, lawyers uh, that opened the door to female lawyers in those uh, prestigious and lucrative Law firms, and of course, um, given her own experience, it it was um, uh, coming full circle, you might say, uh, for Motley. She had been denied um, employment opportunities, and then she ended up being the judge to interpret the Civil Rights Act in a way that conferred opportunity on others. And so, a kind
2: of a sweet victory. That it was. As we wrap up, what would you consider to be the most important components of Motley's legacy, and what do you want readers to take away from the book?
1: Yes, well, I would say that if one asks the question of where was Motley most impactful, um, her, her career as a civil rights lawyer was unparalleled, and she, along with the other lawyers, who litigated cases such as Brown versus Board of Education, all of the higher education cases, and civil uh, rights cases in many other areas, voting, housing, etc., really changed the world, um, uh, and and changed the law in a way that, uh, in context, should be understood as as quite radical change. And so that that those cases certainly are um uh, among her greatest legacy changing the world for for all of us creating a regime where segregation by law um fell uh and this after uh at a time when um and under circumstances where it just would not have been thought possible given the uh, precedent of plessy versus ferguson Um, Her impact on the bench is also an important part of her legacy. Um, She was a history maker. She created opportunity, as I've described, for other uh, women, uh, particularly in the professions. Um, She also uh, created a legacy as a working mother um, who was also a professional um, that continues to resonate with audiences. I've talked about this book uh, to uh, audiences, including law firm associates and partners. And um, unfortunately, many of them uh, still experience struggle around being a parent and being a professional. And uh, it is terrific to have been able to write a book about someone who was able to break a barrier there. And then, of course, there is the the theme that I discuss in my book of being a barrier breaker uh, as an African-American and uh, being able to achieve quite a lot as a symbol of change and a representative of change. She became a representative of the state uh, when she had spent her career attacking the, uh, decision-making of, uh, state actors. And so that is, um, both remarkable, but also as I describe in my book, she was only able to do so much, um, as, uh, uh as a judge, um, because of norms of professionalism, because of the eventual backlash against, uh, uh, civil rights advancers. And so ultimately the legacy is one of personal achievement, but it's mixed in terms of um, the the changes that the progressive movements themselves were able to achieve under the law. The women's movement, the civil rights movement, anti-poverty movement, all uh, uh, ran up against um, uh, resistance. And uh, that too was a part of Motley's legacy. She personifies that backlash against the civil rights and women's rights movements.
2: That she does. Thank you so much, Dean brown Nagan for joining me today to discuss Constance Baker Motley. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of Civil Rights Queen to learn about this path breaking woman who is a war tireless warrior, I want to say, for a social joy for social justice. Dean Brown Nagan, thank you again. Thank you again for joining me today.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me.